Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters Europe, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Kato Aerts. In this special series of podcasts, we will be looking at employment and labor issues affecting businesses and organizations, specifically in our European jurisdictions. Joining us today on the program are Anne Bougea, Senior Associate at GVZH, and Marco Repich, partner at Doklestik Repich and Gain. Welcome both. It's so nice to have you on the program. How are you doing today? Thank you. We're doing pretty good. The weather is not so nice, but unfortunately it's winter, so you know, you can imagine. Exactly. Pretty similar in Belgium. <laughs> and Yuan, how are you? All good, thanks. Our weather is not too great either, despite the reputation of sunny Malta, but um, I guess it's winter as well. Thank you for this opportunity. I look forward to speaking together with Marco. Me too. So today we will be discussing the gig economy in Malta and Serbia. Also, stay tuned for more podcasts on this topic from other European jurisdictions and register for our webinar on December 14th. You can find the link in the description of this podcast. So let's start with the first question. At surface level, the so-called gig economy model appears to be a great mode of employment. However, when taking a closer look, a number of downsides are revealed. In your opinion, Marco, what are the main advantages and disadvantages of using a gig economy model? Yeah, well, you are absolutely right in this point. There is a huge number of advantages to the gig economy, especially in Serbia. However, unfortunately, there are also some downsides of this kind of work. And I have to say that it really depends from the industry to industry, you know. But as a generally speaking, you may say that advantages are basically related to the flexible working hours, to some kind of liberty to the people that, that would like to have some space in their work. However, it's not typical day-to-day -day work in a sense of the employment, so you don't have the legislation put in place. So basically, you don't have enough protection in case you, you have to go to the court or you need some kind of support by the local government. Also, in some cases, you are basically invisible part of the society. They don't see you when the syndicates negotiate with the government you're not part of the equation. So basically, although there are good things, I would say also some industry like IT industry is a good niche because the salaries are significantly higher than average salary in Serbia, maybe two or three times more. However, the fact lies they're still in the gray area, legally speaking. So when you want to enforce some of your rights, before the court, it is quite difficult. Yeah, I think that's pretty similar in Belgium. Technology is great and it offers a lot of opportunities, but the laws are still, let's say, falling behind a little bit in terms of how to deal with that and with those new situations. And how are things with you, Anne? It's the same. In fact, unfortunately, gig workers are seen to be very much working in the grey. As much as the gig economy itself and the gig worker would be open or available to more flexibility and have, I suppose, larger access to different clients in terms of work base and, and workforce and also in terms of times and choices. However, when it comes to the payment of tax and social security, like any other EU member states, we obviously have obligations also for social security in terms of that. So 
that would mean that every gig worker would be liable to pay his own tax and social security and also have his own accounts being made separately, obviously. And that sometimes might give the impression that gig workers are in fact working in the grey. Uh, the fact that they don't have a clear employment status because our laws are unfortunately lagging behind. We've had a huge boost in gig workers in the past couple of years, also with the technology boom that we're, we're currently facing. However, our laws have not unfortunately been brought to speed with the current situation. Okay, so pretty similar as in Serbia. And I guess if, if the laws are falling behind, there is also this question of how to apply the current ones. In your jurisdictions, is there a risk of, of misclassification or recharacterization of the relationship? I mean, does the law regulate the conditions under which an independent contractor or freelancer might be considered as a MAST employee? And how have courts in your jurisdiction interpreted these conditions? Marco? Well, that is a very good question. And when the clients are approached to me with this kind of question, I always say there is two different views. First view is from the perspective of the tax authorities, and the other is the view from how the courts are looking at. For the first tax authorities, they want to have as much people as possible employed because the social contributions and the tax are much higher than in gig economy. So that is in their best interest to introduce as much people as possible in, how to say, in the regular economy. Therefore, they introduced a few years ago, I, I believe in 2019, and with the implementation from 2020, this kind of test, they call it independent test. With that test, they wanted to include as much as possible entrepreneurs to be reclassified as employees. Just for you to understand, in the history, when the international companies arrived, especially in the IT sector I mentioned, they thought the best way is to engage local staff through the agency agreements, making them entrepreneurs, because they are paying lump sum taxes, which are maybe three times lower than regular taxes. So basically, they start huge businesses with the army of entrepreneurs. However, under pressure of the big companies like Microsoft or similar, which did everything by the book, how to say, the government said, okay, we will introduce this kind of independence test. And if you fail or if you meet five or more criteria, there is eight or nine criteria, you basically become an employee from the tax perspective. On the other hand, when the courts are looking at whether you are employee or you are independent entrepreneur, for example, they don't have this kind of five, four, three points. They're more focused what you do. And if it is related to the main activity of the company, then basically you are employee. If it is not, then you are not. For, for example, if it is a regular company and you are doing translation work, for example, then, okay, you are not part of the company. But if they engage you and you're doing marketing every day, you're not marketing agency, then you are employee, for example. That is how things going on in Serbia. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, with the criteria, it definitely rings a bell. In Belgium, we have a similar system where in specific sectors, nine criteria apply. So even the number is the same. 
with the uh, presumption that if you tick too many boxes, then it becomes an employment agreement. So very similar. And it's all about looking at the facts and what happens in practice, because people might put things in writing and then not act accordingly. And that's what it's all about, right? And how are things in Malta, Anne? So in reality, very, very similar. In fact, we do have a similar legislation. And it was enacted a number of years ago where you have eight points at law. And if an employee satisfies five or more out of those eight, it is automatic presumption of employment. In fact, we call it the legislation for reclassification. It's interesting to note that the the idea, the scope behind the legislation many years ago was was different than the gig economy movement, so to say. So the, the law was enacted because at the time there was a slight movement in Malta where employers used to insist on having the employees as self-employed so that they would pay their own tax and social security and they would not have vacation leave, sick leave, etc. So there was a slight movement in, in that respect. And what the government chose to do to regularize that matter is to enact this law and basically fight the precarious employment uh, scenario. I mean, incidentally, years later, the, the law has in fact also been sort of satisfying this gig movement or not satisfying the gig movement, so to say, because we do have a number of clients and a number of situations whereby it is, in fact, a a genuine gig economy sort of scenario where the employee would fall squarely out of choice within that legislation, but they would fall in fact, under a reclassification. Um, our legislation, I don't know whether it is similar in Serbia and in, and in Belgium, um, offers a, a proviso, though, and it says that if someone wants to maintain the self-employment criteria, you may apply to the director of labor and you may ask to still remain as a self-employed person and that you do not wish to be reclassified as an employee and the director of labor can choose to either accept or, or deny this request. I, I don't know whether, whether that's the same in in Serbia, Marco? Yeah, it's uh, almost the same. I don't know whether they're using the same or similar templates, but the situation is pretty much like like you described in Malta. That's very interesting, actually, because the will of the parties is definitely a criterion in Belgium to assess whether a person qualifies as an employee or a self-employed worker. But it's not, let's say, the ultimate criterion in the sense that if the employee or the self-employed worker were to ask the court or, or the social inspector to remain a self-employed person, and the facts are contrary to that wish, then that wouldn't be respected by the social auditor. I mean, that wish just wouldn't be granted. It's one of the criteria, but what definitely prevails is how the parties engage and how they interact with each other. So it's very, very interesting. We may say when, well, tax authorities could, you know, they're using the, the substance over form doctrine when they assess whether there is a tax obligation or not. So they can go beyond the contract and try to find the economic value, the economic ratio of the other contractual relationship, because basically two parties agreed to avoid, to make it tax avoidance, you know, the the employee and employer, because employer designate to you some some amount and you want in in gross and you want to have as much net amount as possible. So basically you are two parties of of the same scheme. So the tax authorities could go through the the contracts and it is possible. And basically the articles that, that put in place these rules 
but the course they look at a little bit different and they try to find what you actually do, what is your position, but to more extent they're limited by the contract itself. Very interesting. Yeah, it makes makes sense to look at the economic ratio because that's mainly the reason why the choices are being made as as they are. I would like to ask you both, let's say a question from a different angle because I wonder I mean, we have equal pay rules in many countries, and and it's a big issue, especially if you think of the pay gap. And I was wondering, in in Malta and Serbia, do equal pay rules apply to workers engaged through a gig economy model, Marco? Well, you know, there is no written rules that they would say that the people that are doing the gig economy and how to say the regular economy must have the same salary. It is normal that in some cases, the people employed in the gig economy has much higher salaries than regular, especially in some niche. But in the real economy, in industry or similar, where the people basically have less salaries, there are no exact rules that could protect them. What is in this scenario only possibility for, for the employees is to start the court disputes, asking from the court to identify that we are doing the same job, basically, although I'm, I'm formally in the gig economy, I'm actually employee. So if the court identify you that you are actually worker as your colleague, although, although you're not formally colleagues, then you could seek for every other rights, including to the same salary for the same work. But, you know, it's very hard. You have to prove first that you are part of the system. And then on the second step, you have to seek this kind of compensation. So a lot of people, they're not willing to go this far. And what about you, Anne, in Malta? So similarly, the equal pay for equal work concept applies for employees in an employee scenario. If anyone within the gig economy want to dispute, the first step, as Mark pointed out, would have to be for the reclassification. And then the second step would have to be in terms of comparator for someone that's doing that same role and same job. So it would definitely be a very tough test to satisfy. We have not had uh, any cases in this respect. And in fact, even with respect to the reclassification, there has been one case that has fallen squarely within tackling the reclassification matter in Motam. That happened last year. So even with respect to reclassification of employees, it's not something that we see very often. Very interesting. I think we're at the end of this discussion, but it's been a really interesting one. I would like to thank you both so much for your time, Anne and Marco. If you'd like to connect with Anne or Marco, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. Also visit the ELA website at ela.law, where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Kato Arts, and thanks for listening.